0: Hey everybody! Welcome to this week's episode of the Breakpoint Podcast, starring myself and my co-host Frankie Nicolazzi. And today we are welcoming a very special guest from Eastern Long Island. Our good friend Dylan Roberts, who is uh, currently a junior development coach. Uh, Dylan, where are you coaching out of these days?
1: So currently I'm at a smaller club uh, out East, Eastern Athletic at Blue Point. Um, more and more though, I'm starting to go private. Um, I feel like I can provide a little bit more attention as I. Uh, work my way out west.
0: Awesome. And uh, just for the listeners to know, Dylan and I know each other uh, through a couple of tournaments that we played. Um, And then Dylan actually coached me at Hofstra's Volunteer Assistant. That was a really good time that we had. And uh, now we've brought him on the pod to talk about uh, our little mini-series that Frank and I came up with, What is Wrong with American Tennis. This is going to be part one of the mini-series. And we're going to get into, basically from a junior development perspective, um, from kids growing up in America, how come We aren't producing American champions like we
2: are uh, in the past. Frank, want to lead us off? Yeah, sure. So I think just to give the listeners a little bit of context here, the main reason why we came up with this podcast is throughout most of our parents' lives and even the beginning of our lives, really, America has been the dominant force in in, in tennis on the women's side and the men's side for the most part. And, you know, the U.S. went from having Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi as the number one and number two men's players in the world to all of a sudden Taylor Fritz is the number one American currently at, I think, 19 or 18 in the world, something along those lines, which is not to downplay Taylor Fritz. I actually think he's a great player and I enjoy him a lot, but that shows sort of the fall that the U.S. has had in comparison to their European counterparts. And this downfall has happened while Marcus and I were sort of going through the development system of the United States. And so we think we can give a little bit of good context here, as well as some of the guests that we're going to have, inclusive of Dylan, who is here with us today. So we'll kick it off from here. Dylan, why do you think American tennis is suffering right now and is no longer on top of the game?
1: So I think it's a multifaceted issue. Um, I think it's fair to look at the beginning, looking at one as you guys have discussed in previous podcasts the era that we're in the players that are currently existing um and just a quick example if you look at the most recent us open when three or four of those big hitters uh fed rafa team warinka we saw let's say nine to 12 players that get a chance at a second week right so with those guys existing it was very tough for some of these americans to make it um that's a more straightforward at the beginning now my question leading forward is why is it with american tennis initially only big servers were making it right as you're going through a junior standpoint why was that the only style or stuff we would see from query to you know to isner to opel canal why were those the guys um that were making it up through the junior system um you know what did they bring to the table consistently that allowed them to pass everybody else by um to me i think at a junior standpoint i think the mental training for juniors. And I think the tactical training for juniors don't allow them to perform at the top level. So, you know, everybody can train their physical attributes, very straightforward, but do they have the capability to train their mind to be prepared to last two weeks of high-level tennis, right? So if you're a big server, do we have to play physically for these two weeks, right? Or do we hit bombs and we, we move on? So, you know, I think looking at the mental aspect of the game would be very important as
2: they go through this. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think you could even, again, not to bully Taylor Fritz here again, but uh, Taylor Fritz is, is very much along those lines. He's based, his game revolves around that big serve, plus one. All the Americans that come through effectively are all, you know, six foot three plus tall. Um, and even when I was going through juniors and Marcus, you can, you know, give your thoughts on this too, but it was always about, you know, big serve, big forehand, like, That was that was what we were taught. That was what we were taught to focus on everything. There was never really that emphasis on like proper point construction, high percentage tennis of like if you keep the ball cross court, you're going to have X percentage that the ball is going to go in versus going down the line, when to change direction. All of these sort of things that Dylan is is highlighting here, I think, is, is very true and very spot on yeah and i think
0: there are actually two reasons for that i'm curious here dylan's thoughts on this i think one it really has to do with the environment that we grow up in so i mean american tennis players are always playing on fast surfaces we're always playing on hard courts all the time or we're playing on hard true which is considered quote unquote clay but it's basically kind of a fast hard court with sand really um and then we also have some grass court play occasionally but mainly it's the hard courts and hard true courts so obviously a style that suits winning on these surfaces are big serve Big forehand, backhand, you can just kind of push in and, you know, run around your backhand, basically, a la Jim or guys like that. And second, it has to also do with the tradition of American tennis, you know, Pete Sampras, Agassi, Currier. These guys just hit massive balls and, uh, you know, they they didn't really need an all-around game to get, you know, the surfaces have basically slowed down so much on tour as well that it has supported more even europeans coming onto america to play on slower hard courts they have more success because they already have that base of how to develop points and how to think through a match from their clay court experience that's more translatable to hard court than it is from going from fast services to slow services and dylan i want to hear your thoughts on you know do you see the same thing and you know when you're coaching uh, some children these days
1: you know so it's very interesting when we're talking about you know speed of surface and and how they're training and I look back at if we have these academies within Florida and these other states, they do have the clay court um, availability, right? So we'll see guys make it and we'll look and we'll say, you know, how does he not have a back end, right? You, this is your, your job at this point, And you've done all these training and hours. Shout out to Steve Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and you look at that as, and it's, it's an obvious, you know, you have a stable one, but it's a hole, right? And and you get to that threshold. and you know, us in the Eastern section, you know, I'll go to junior tournaments and we're looking at tight curtains against the sidelines and we're looking at faster courts and the kids still aren't even serving at a junior level. But, and that leads me to that question earlier saying, how do the big servers make it? When I'm looking at a junior standpoint, we don't even train serves that much. So I look at these holes within the game. And then I ask it, are you developing or earlier on are we win chasing, right? Are we, are we sticking to just weapons? And are we accepting that our weapons are good enough? Or are we going to keep developing, especially from 12s to 14s? I mean, you have to build a complete, you know, game. Um, And as you alluded to, the surfaces are slowing down, the balls are fluffing up, and there's more grinding. Um, You got guys 30,000 feet behind the baseline returning. So you need to have a more complete game. And, you know, even when we look at these big servers, we ask ourselves, why aren't you coming forward, right? Why are you trying to hit from the baseline when everybody knows you're not going to be able to last as long as these guys? You got to accept who you are. Um, so, you know, that's kind of how I, I, I currently view, you know, junior tennis moving forward is how to build a complete game. Right. And it all starts with, with the mind.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree,
1: Dylan. And, you know, thank you for
0: bringing that perspective that that's basically exactly what's going on right now. And, you know, it's kind of a unique situation, especially in the Northeast when we're talking about kids playing on indoor hard courts all the time, they don't have the opportunity to play outside as much. Uh, it's a little bit of a shame too because I don't know Frank if you remember even like tournaments in the summer here a lot of them are also indoors uh, it's kind of a detrimental to the development of your kind of outdoor game which is always slower when you play outside and you know
1: it's kind of a shame and I think that that's why we could definitely produce some better players and just to add on that I think it <clears throat> from the indoor perspective it removes that aspect of, of learning how to play chess not checkers right so we get into these habits of thinking that two hard balls is enough right? Three hard balls is enough. And now you're seeing these great athletes on the clay that'll be like, all right, you're going to have to do it eight to 10 more times, right? How do you play more of the angles of a court as opposed to straightforward and a linear ball? And, you know, you got to be able to build that complete game. You got to use the entire court. And I think teaching kids tactically and mentally to be able to perform and play more chess and not checkers is very
2: important. I would also say this, I think in America we have a very big tendency to prioritize offensive tennis more than any other sort of play style, and that is just a fundamentally wrong outlook to have. Um, if you look at, like, let's say, no, they, their play styles have changed now, but Novak and Nadal, when they were coming up, were considered counter punchers. They were considered defensive tennis players in many, many ways. And I think that part of it, you know, Dylan is sort of alluding to this with the mental aspect is that we glorify anyone that plays this offensive, you know, serve plus one play style. And anyone who's not playing that is just called the pusher, right? No, but, you know, we laugh, but like in all honesty, like, and I was guilty of this too, as a junior, like we make fun of them. We like, Oh, you're a pusher. Like you're not trying to play. Like you're not trying to have fun. You're just trying to get the ball back and you know, whatever. But in actuality, the guy who's a, quote-unquote pusher, is playing chess, not checkers. He knows that he's just going to eventually wear you down and frustrate you, and it's part of a longer uh, game, really. And I think that that's something that needs to be changed, really, from a mentality standpoint of, of, of coaching, is that we can't just call someone a pusher. We need to really take a deeper look and think bigger about that play style. Right. And I think going off of that is that's a
1: style of play. Right. And when I'm discussing mental and how to handle <clears throat> adversity in different game styles, this is problem solving. Right. So when we talk about chess, we're problem solving. So when I say every player is going to be different. Right. You're going to play different guys as you go up through the junior rankings. You know, some people may say moon baller, but that person's keeping a steady ball. What are you going to do about it? Right? At the end of the day, what are you going to do about their style of play? And it comes to, hey, I'm going to show up, I have to train. I struggled with a loopier ball, right? Or I struggled with how many balls they made and I could not. And... I think creating that atmosphere where you're constantly working on how to handle adversity goes into the mental aspect of the game and you know as I discuss things later well you know you'll start to understand you know a little bit how I view my style and what I think is absolutely missing as uh, these juniors are going through everything they have to deal with especially at tournaments
2: yeah um, so I think we're gonna just move on to the next question because I think we could just talk all day about this particular one but um, so question two that we were sort of wrote down to talk about is, how come children are pursuing other sports and not tennis? And how can we better attract the best athletes to be playing this game? Um, And I think that this sort of comes about because tennis is just not, I mean, we've spoken about this before, but tennis is just not as popular as it once was like in the seventies and the eighties when it was considered, you know, the premier sport to be playing in all honesty, Um, you know, and, and that obviously has contributed to America's sort of, Decline relative to the rest of the world where tennis is effectively like in Spain, particularly Spain uh, tennis is like the number two sport there to soccer. I I would I would argue. And even in Italy now, I've seen a massive cultural shift because of the rise of Matteo Berrettini, Yannick Sinner, Lorenzo Sanago, Fabio Fognini. Uh, tennis is becoming like primetime television there now, too. Uh, what 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 do we need to change in? Uh, in America to get that, to get that fixed.
0: Yeah. And I think that's also kind of the overarching kind of, you know, issue that America is having is that tennis is the second most popular sport in almost all European countries behind soccer. Um, so if you're not a soccer player, you're probably going to be playing tennis at some point, even recreationally. So it's just kind of more of a hype all around and same thing in South America, you know, our, the Argentinas but even the Brazils of the world, you know, Brazil has all of a sudden pumped out a lot of tennis players. So You know, Dylan, obviously here we have, you know, we got American football, we got basketball, we got baseball, and we even have soccer here to an extent to compete with. That's already four sports, and occasionally in more northern places you got some ice hockey to compete with. How are are we really missing out on the best athletes uh, growing up kind of, you know, because of these other sports, and how can we attract kids to tennis?
1: I think some of it comes down to... um first and foremost, is the availability to watch the game, right? To even be able to watch tennis, right? Now they're like, okay, you need to have the tennis channel or or other, you know, opportunities online. So to even just watch the sport, learn the sport, you know, maybe you could pull up a YouTube clip, but it's not the same. I think also tennis would be more exciting if they played it from the court level view from behind. You get to watch the speed of the game at a court level view, as opposed to an above almost ping pong looking vision of it, right? You see, the real athleticism going on when it's court level and that's a little more exciting to bring people in to begin for for kids i think it needs to be constantly engaging because now with how everything is even su- uh, society and everything like that it's always at the snap of a finger stuff is always constantly moving so when kids are stuck standing in a line waiting for a ball or waiting for other things they start to lose that interest they start to lack the interest as opposed to another sport i can run around all the time right i can sprint if i play basketball I'll run up and down the court right um, so that kind of comes down to a little bit of the, the, the coaching and, and the marketing of the game in that aspect to keep these athletes in. Um, the next part would be opportunity, right? How often are these opportunities available? So when the good athletes, um, let's say for lack of a better term, you know, show up to your clinic, right? And, and they, they're in front of you, what's going to entice them to come back, right? What would make them enjoy the game? What games are they getting to play in front of you? They're like, oh, I enjoy doing this. Right, because it's very easy to get turned away from the game if you miss a couple balls, launch a couple, and you have to stop hitting. Right, you're like, okay, stop. As opposed to, oh, if you 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 know you're playing football, let's keep running. You know, and I was a kid that grew up played every sport. Um, Just something about the one-on-one war that you go to in tennis really enticed me. Um, But to keep tennis exciting, you
2: got to keep kids constantly moving. Yeah, I think that's pretty spot on. I would also add, and, and you just touched upon it at the end there, we need to have more team tennis in the sport growing up. Kids want to be a part of the team. That's what gets them connected and staying. Like that's how Marcus and I met for crying out loud. Like we literally met at a CYO, you know, soccer team. Like that is how Marcus and I met when we were 3 years old, 4 years old. So like, you know, it, that is something that I think on the junior level we definitely need to do more. And I think that that's a fundamental thing that tennis has going against it is that the learning curve when you first start out is brutal. Um It is, you can't just like walk onto a court and like all of a sudden like have a rally and do all of this stuff. And that discourages people a lot. And I say that because I have a lot of friends who are like our age that want to get into the sport and they're like, hey, can you like take me on the court and like teach me how to play and whatever? And I'm like, yeah, of course. And then they get on the court and they realize how difficult it is to just put the ball like in the box. And it's like, oh my God, this is way harder than I thought. Like, this is going to be a massive time commitment for me to actually like come good and i think that intimidates a lot of people and i think that's there's two things you could take away from that one is the tennis learning curve and two there's a lot of people who would genuinely be interested in tennis and want to learn it but for some reason when they were kids did not play like whether that's you know their parents didn't put them in it or like you know whatever why why is that that they're not being put into tennis and i think cost also has a big part to do with this um you know, tennis is just a naturally very expensive sport and it's not state funded. It's not subsidized really in any way, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I I, I think that's uh, there's a lot to extract as to why children are not playing this game.
0: Yeah. And I was actually about to touch on the financial aspect of it, because obviously everything in America is capitalized. Um, in, including tennis obviously I mean we go to tennis clubs you see how much they're charging for courts and they're charging for junior lessons and I mean the, you know listen I'm not, I have no complaints about it because we also profit from it right Dylan and I have made some pretty good coin doing this as well um, but overall if you're talking holistically and from a general perspective it's not the best this is why European countries have much better tennis systems because it's more of a hobby and it's more of a club thing it's where people meet it's where people socialize it's where people it's like okay we're going to produce tennis for the greater good of everybody Uh, And this is why it's not that expensive there in comparison to the States. And obviously, you know, if you're a parent and you've only got a certain amount of money that you can, you know, spend on your child's kind of, I guess, you know, development, you're going to spend it on a sport where he can absolutely, you know, like Frank touched upon, play with other children, be more involved there, and you pay one quarter of the price instead of, you know, okay, now you got to go to a a tennis club. Okay, we got to get him a racket. Okay, now we got to find him a coach. Okay, ooh, a private lesson is going to cost you a hundred bucks this time, you know. A group lesson is only available a couple times a week. If you want to do any additional court time, you got to pay, um, especially if you're at a place where you play indoors, like in New York, it gets very pricey. My dad used to just have to cut deals all the time with club owners, all the time he was talking to club owners, say, hey, man, listen, we, you know, we want to cut a deal, we want to cut a deal, we want to cut a deal. That can be grinding after a while, and it's a really full commitment. And because there's no subsidization, and we're going to get into that a little bit later about what the USTA has kind of been doing and what they haven't been doing, um just because it's so capitalistic, it's very difficult to kind of attract uh,
2: young talent. Um, yeah. So I think we will I, I think that 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 perfect segue on to the next part here, which is um, what is American tennis lacking from a junior development perspective? Right. Uh, mainly from the ages of 10 through 18. Right. Because before the age of 10, you know, the under 10s. Um, we sort of spoke about this it's just about letting the kids have fun and like building their love of the game and getting them to be interested and want to come back and play each week that's that's really all it's about from the ages of 10 to 18 now we're talking about tournament play um seeing how they do in terms of win losses you know everything like that so dylan why don't you speak to us a little bit of you know what what your experience has been there
0: Yeah, and Dylan, I want to get a little bit more specific here. So the two questions that we really have is not only just from a training perspective from 10 to 18, because that's what you specialize in. What are your thoughts? You know, the USDA released a couple of years ago the kind of the ball system going from red ball, which is for under 10 children. And we're going to uh, the orange ball, to the green dot ball, to the yellow ball. One is what are your thoughts on that kind of transition and how does it compare to the previous kind of methods of teaching where we just go straight to yellow ball? And two, I don't know how much involvement you have with the USTA and how much they're kind of, you know, how involved are they with private coaches? And do they preach something to you? Do they say, hey, we want to work with you? Or do they, is it more from like a competitive standpoint? Let us know what your thoughts.
1: All right. So, you know, I'll start off with the, you know, color ball progression. Um, you know, I think it's a, 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 a great tool um, in terms of allowing kids to rally more, right? Um, the only time where I find that there's a downside is when there's a kid that is strong enough or prepared to move on to a, a thicker ball or, 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 a yellow ball. And he's forced to be stuck in, he or she is stuck to be in a progression or a point system. They have to play these extra 10 tournaments and, and going through the orange ball progressions that, you know, if they can hold their ground, now they could be ahead of the game. And now you might be talking about those one of those players we alluded to earlier, right. That they can now go from the baseline with a green or a yellow, right. Um, in terms of it, straight up i think it's it's a good idea because now kids can rally even if they smack it a little bit it falls in the court you know you even see people using orange balls for cardio tennis because the adults that want to smack the ball as well they keep it in the court and they get their workout right so same premise is kids can run around hit a couple balls and maybe they're excited then you know then now they're on the hook for maybe a lesson or two and maybe they can learn a little bit do they love the game and you work through that type of um progression um what I do think is, is um, I'll say missing from junior tennis, especially 10 to 18 is um, foundational routines, um, creating your own routine to be prepared for tournaments, right? to be prepared for the daily grind and for everything. So these kids are trying to figure out stuff on the fly sometimes. I can't tell you the amount of tournaments I've been to, kids don't stretch after they play, right? So now let's take a, you know, 12, 13 year old, they don't have a stretching routine and now they start to hit more towards their teens, right? Now you're gonna start to deal with more hormones. You're gonna deal with all these other things as you're growing up. You need steady routines to really progress through these age groups so you have less things to handle, right? The less variables you have to handle, the more in control you feel and you feel better on court. Um, I think, you know, not enough mental training is done, honestly, right? I don't think kids are properly prepared to deal with their emotions on court. Right. And, and I feel for the kid that you see maybe yelling, maybe wants to do something with the racket because no one spoke to spoke to this player. No one explained, hey, you're going to feel this way and how to address those emotions. Um, and then, you know, on a tactical standpoint, um, just very briefly of just how to play with what your game is, create an identity for each kid. You know, everybody needs to know what their identity is. And there's no right or wrong one, right? If you're not the fastest, play crafty, right? If you are fast, let's get you there the right way. And I think personalized attention from 10 to 18, especially for those players that are really trying to make it um, to the top, doesn't happen enough. So, you know, those are for those first two. Yeah, I think that's
0: and something that I do want to touch is that a lot of coaches these days don't necessarily kind of go down the personalized coaching route. They kind of teach their own system of of playing you know um dylan and i know of a few coaches like that who kind of just they teach their own system regardless of the player's kind of body type their initial style what kind of you know nature you know kind of like gifts that nature has given them as a tennis player now for some the problem is this If, if the coach has success with one player that way they think okay this is the answer to everything even though it's not right, there are different body types, there are different methods of playing, there are different emotions, different mindsets, different styles, and I think that a, a, a well versed, dynamic coach will you know will be able to recognize that and say, okay, listen, you know, for example, uh, Marcus is a really tall guy, you know, he's not going to be the he's not going to be Alec, Alex Dimanauer out there today, <laughs> you know, um, but he's got a good serve and he's got a very good lanky backhand, so let's use those to his advantage, right? And I think coaches need to kind of realize that you know because the, the, again like you mentioned the physical can always be developed right you can always work on getting faster you can always work on getting stronger and stuff but it's like what are you really doing for your mind because uh, as we all know sitting here tennis is a effing mind game and uh, you know even for example frank and i played a doubles match on thursday night and we were playing against two old dudes who were four or fives and i was like oh, man, frank we're gonna We're going to smoke these guys and we lose the first set six, three, and I'm literally about to lose my shit. So, you know, (laughs) I'm just, I'm absolutely losing it. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's a complete mind game. And I think that mental training is something that Dylan really needs to, you know, uh,
1: yeah, go ahead. So just to continue off of that, right. And this is where I say for, for junior development, um, not just from a structural standpoint, but it's not taken as seriously, right? So even from the academies that I've bounced to and had the opportunity when I went with a junior, they would have, hey, we're gonna do mental training today. The kids are posted in the back, their feet are up and they have the notebook, right? And they're like, okay, we're gonna do our mental training. And then match day comes, oh, I'm nervous right or 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 i feel it I'm, I'm too so what's your routines right you do a dynamic you, you do your jog you do your shadows you do whatever it takes but what are you what are you doing up top to really set your mind straight to be prepared because you're about to go to battle right and if you're not prepared you can have the best engine you can have the best everything but if the mind doesn't tell it to you your body will not allow it to happen right the body never hesitates the mind does right The the what if the doubt all comes from the brain so how can we expect this from, from a top level if it's not trained earlier on to some capacity to, to at least give you some tidbits of information to begin that snowball effect, if you will, to be a mental dominant force?
2: Yeah, I think that's pretty spot on. Um, the, another thing that I kind of wanted to talk about, and we, we didn't write this down, so it's going to be a little bit freelance, but is, it kind of goes along with the mental training is watching matches like just taking notes of watching a match and observing the tactical things that players are doing in high tension moments and high stress moments. I feel like that's something that I never really had much when I was going through the USCA development cycle of just like the equivalent of in, in, in American football of just sitting back and watching the film of the match. Right. I don't think that that's done enough in tennis. And I think that that's something that can be extremely helpful when looking to progressive players tactical knowledge of the game their problem solving that we're alluding to because if you're able to absorb that information when you're not on the court when you're like marcus and i are the perfect example actually is what we went through on thursday marcus and i played that doubles match we lost the first set right we knew we were better than those two players we literally at the start of the second set came to each other and i walk i vividly remember this walked up to marcus on the baseline and i said all right What do we need to fix? And it was very simply like, keep the ball cross court. Don't attack them at the net. They have fantastic hands. Like, make them, we need to make them beat us from the baseline because they can't. And sure enough, that adjustment won us the match. The rest of the sets were 6 3, 6 3, 6 3, all in favor of us, like a blitz. So I feel like that's something that needs to be incorporated into the game because when you acquire that knowledge when you're by yourself out there and you need to make that match adjustment you're gonna say oh i remember you know this pro player that i really like he made this adjustment to do this and that's how he overcame that play style to win the match
1: no 100 and and they constantly talk about of, of being present right you got to play these matches and you have to stay present in the current moment right so when, I, when we're discussing these juniors and, and these players coming up, if emotions get in the way, you can't stay present, right? They say, oh, next point. Every point's a new point. And what's the routine to allow you to stay present, to make those on-the-fly adjustments to play, right? Are you going to be aware of what's going on in the match or are you so wrapped up on your own half of the mistakes you're making, right? If you think that, you know, oh, I can't make a forehand today or I can't make balls, you might not realize that the person on the other side is doing something specific to throw you off a little bit, right? Um, do you have something that you're going to go back to your towel and reset like is there any type of place you can go to center yourself to stay present and actually play a match right you can't play something tactically if you're emotional right and that's where i'm you know that's where i constantly am alluding to this mental side because you can go train and 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 run miles and miles and miles but can you sit down and stay centered with your thoughts for a long period of time right You're, you're going to play at the highest level multiple hours of tennis the, the mind is a muscle as well. So I think understanding that really helped juniors feel better on the match court um, and not implode as much at a higher level.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think m- mental training is of the utmost importance. And I think that this is what really has separated, if we're looking at a pro level, it is what has separated the big three from everybody else. It's not the physical, right? We've got guys on tours who are just absolute beasts of athletes that we've never seen in the tennis game before but what is separate we're thinking to ourselves okay how are these guys still on top it's because of the mental these top three guys i mean and now we're starting to see like a a medvedev even you know even though sometimes he's a little shaky still is much stronger i think mentally than all the next gen folks you know like svarev and and sitsipas i think he's miles ahead of them mentally uh, but not physically. I think the other two guys are more physically gifted and more talent gifted from a stroke perspective, and just a regular tennis perspective. Medvedev's mental game is outrageous, and I think that is really is what's making the difference in his game. And that's something that, you know, he's even got to rip into him all he want for having a psychologist in his box. It's working. It's working, and people can say, oh, you know, you don't need it. Well, guess what? It's working, and he's winning Grand Slams. He's winning Masters titles. Whatever he's doing, it's working.
2: I think you can even like extrapolate more from that. From a simple perspective, if there were if Sitsipas, uh, Zverev, and Medvedev were American, right? They were 16 years old. Which one of those three, if there were two spots in a high level development academy, who would the USTA take into the development academy?
0: Dylan. Ooh, we're putting them on the spot here.
2: No, I I would
1: say they would take. Uh... Zverev and Sissi pass because the 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 visual stroke production out of Medvedev would be completely you know uh, enticing the same way we view a kid that's super fast you know and and they would view the unorthodox strokes and be like well it's going to take some cleaning up or, or or you know we might have to do a little extra work with this one but you see the you know the other guys that bring something a little bit more straightforward or fluid right away and they're like oh we can the foundation is so strong here you know.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And I think that's exactly the point that we're making is that I don't think there's enough creativity allowed, sort of, um, from the USTA's perspective of saying, like, hey, this guy Medvedev is so wacky. He's so unorthodox. I would hate to play him. Like, I would absolutely... That, if, and from a truly objective perspective, like, if I was ever that good, I would never want to play Medvedev. I would take playing Zverev like every day of the week and twice on Sunday because if that guy's second serve is just not happening, like I'm going to be up like love 30 every single service game because this guy just cannot put a serve in or he's going to put it at like 65 miles an hour and like I'll take my bets. You know, it, it, it's it's really I think that sort of speaks to like what we were talking about earlier with like there is this hyper fixation on a play style um, that we have here. That is just leading to a lot of players slipping through the cracks, and I feel like a player like Medvedev, if he were American, would have slipped through our cracks.
0: Absolutely, and this is going to segue into our, you know, last kind of couple of questions here for Dylan. Um, you know, speaking of the USTA and kind of what kind of, well, first of all, what kind of communication do you actually have with the USTA, considering that you are a junior development coach? Do they, you know? reach out to you and say, Hey, listen, Dylan, we want to work with you. We think that you should, you know, implement kind of our system of, of teaching children, or, you know, is it just kind of like you don't really have any support? Let us know, you know, what, what's really going on there.
1: So as of right now, it's, it's not a, a crazy amount of communication. It's from, from what I've seen, you know, they, they, they're definitely involved when it comes to, um, you know, the color ball progressions and making sure that stuff happens fluid. Um, they're, they're involved. I'd like to see more involvement with the JTT, the Junior Team Tennis. From them, um, just seeing it at my own club, you know, another, you know, the manager at our club runs that. Communication a little bit difficult, you know. You know, I also, you know, the only place I give them, a, a, you know, a little more slack is during everything COVID-wise. They changed the the, the rankings, the, the the tournament names, and and the and all that at one time. You know, is that the best decision? You know, we can we can discuss that at a different date. But they were handling all of those moving parts at once. Um, but it seems that when you reach a certain threshold, or if you're at a certain facility, there is more contact, right? If, if you make it, you produce X amount of players and you're, you're, you're pumping them in and those kids now apply for grants or, or other available funding, they will try their best to reach out. Um, but it's usually when you reach a certain threshold, there's a little bit more involvement with the relationship. Now, Dylan, don't you think, in my opinion, don't you
0: think it'd be more productive if the USTA were to contact clubs in the beginning and say, hey, what resources do you need in order to produce, you know, better players and have, you know, better kind of development programs so that players can be pumped out instead of, I think, in my, in my opinion, and, and Frank, you can chime in here too, I think, especially, like, let's take Francis Tiafo and guys like that, for example, you know, these kids will grow up in a system at a, at a private academy, you know, like a la College Park or somewhere, they will get really good and then the USTA will want to snatch them, and they will say, "Oh yeah, you know what? Here, come here. We'll feed, we'll, you know, we'll coach you and everything, but we're going to say that you're ours even though you didn't develop the player. We did. Someone, you know, from a Bollettaria, a College Park, or, you know, a Dylan Roberts Tennis Academy, for example, you know, you put in all the work to produce the player. The USTA is going to come in with their big dollars, steal the kid away, and now they're going to say, "Yeah, this is the product of the USTA. It really should be the other way around where they say, "Okay, we're going to fund these clubs, and we can say, "Okay, we he came out of a usta funded club." you know, with Dylan Roberts, you know, having a big hand in this player's development. Let me, you know,
1: am I right in that? I agree. I think what's, uh, you know, would be most beneficial is to be able to maintain the relationship with the player and their developmental coach, right? You can't put a dollar sign on relationships. That's a person that you trust. Um, You know, when you start with someone from a young age, you know the person, right? You know, maybe what they like to do before a match. Maybe something that drops their shoulders. Just you say a couple sentences, you joke because you know this person. Um, and i think what occurs you know a little bit too often is you know alluding to what you say is that a player might be necessarily transferred to a different facility and it also comes down to to the money in that way right if, if they discuss the the parents they say look you know we'll give them a scholarship to you know whatever facility you want to name and the parents see that as an opportunity because they might not be able to afford something right and then you know, we could even get into talking about a travel cost for a higher level tournament, right? You're gonna go deep and play for a hotel for the for the week. Um, so I do think if there was that available funding for these players, you're able to maintain a relationship at least to the extent where the developmental coach creates um, a relationship with whatever the future coach may be, or you bring them for x amount of time, right? Let's say you bring the developmental coach down for a month. Maybe that coach can't leave because family or whatever your reason might be, but there's still that. Consistency for the player. There's that trust. Like, hey, if my coach trusts this person and views this as someone that I can go to, now you've created a connection between player and coach that sometimes doesn't happen, and you need that to be organic so that you can really perform at a higher level.
2: Yeah, I think that's I think that's spot on. Um, I, I also will say this in defense of the UST. I can't only rail on them this entire episode. Um, a big problem of the United States with what Dylan just talked about is geography. The United States is just geographically is a massive country, right? I mean, it's easier when you're in, let's say, like a Spain, right? Where, you know, you could crisscross the country in like, I would assume, like eight hours max. Whereas going from coast to coast in the United States, you know, you're in a car for two days. So, if not more.
0: Yeah, or you're taking a seven-hour plane ride, going from New York to L.A., basically. Correct,
2: yeah. But you understand the point that I'm saying. So, it is hard to sort of... And I think this is why what what Dylan just said made sense. The United States it, geographically, it it never makes sense to centralize all of the talent. There's too much of a reach for them to try to bring everybody all into Northern Florida or Southern California. It just doesn't make sense. So why not instead of trying to centralize it, federalize it, and then say, hey, you know, this is this these will be the bases around each section right usta east whatever but like from there you should be funding all of these private coaches all of these private clubs to say hey you're doing a great job with development we want you to continue developing here's some funding to help out because quite frankly uh, and this is i think the overarching theme of the episode cost is the is the big issue right and this is this is this is not just exclusive to tennis right this is exclusive This happens with the United States with a bunch of other sports that they compete against Europeans, right? Soccer being the other prevalent one, right? There was a soccer player named Zlatan Ibrahimovic that came to the United States to play in the MLS. He comes in and the first thing that he notes is this country is never going to be successful at soccer because you're denying like 75% of people from ever playing the game. It cost me $3,000 a month just to have my kids be in like a really good soccer club with good coaching. Like uh, in Europe, this is like free. Like this is just like you show up at a park, a good coach sees you, and it's just like, oh, yeah, come play for my team. And that's it. Yeah, and that kind of harps back to the capitalism
0: point that I that I brought up earlier in the episode. It's just everything here is all about, you know, the dollar, unfortunately. And we're going to miss out on opportunities in soccer and obviously tennis. We're going to miss out on kind of, you know, players. Like, for example, I mean, how it's so rare to see a guy like a Francis Tiafoe really make it somebody who just his dad happened to be a janitor at one of the best tennis academies in america and he got free coaching that you know if, if his dad had been a janitor at you know a walmart there would be no francis Tiafo. so I, just it's all about the opportunity right i i think that the, the overall kind of sentiment from this episode and what dylan has you know brought to us today is that we just need to give kids opportunities really we're not you know if, if it doesn't pan out the way we want it to that's fine but at least
2: we need the opportunities because all these countries all these other european countries are getting the opportunities the the last thing that i'll say about it in regards to the capitalism thing is yes i hear you but the money is there the, the the usta has the money to properly allocate they just just don't do it right and that's 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 i think the the frustrating part for me and like the part that like makes me like drives me nuts quite honestly is like the USTA has more resources and more money than any other tennis federation in the world, probably. And, like, it, it, it still is just so seemingly negligent as to how the game has changed and player development has changed over the past 30 years. Like, it's it's, it's almost as if they're still living in the 1980s and 90s, where, like, going to Balateri Academy was the only way you were going to go pro. It. it like you can just basically make a direct link between like the fall of the tennis academy right in Florida and the fall of U.S. men's tennis. It's 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 literally the same graph.
1: Yeah, I mean it comes down to opportunity and funding, right? I, I think that's what really has to be pushed forward, moving <clears throat> you know forward on that. And even just to you know allude to what you're saying in terms of that that older style of how things are, were going about. You know, you can just take the for juniors the the twenty twenty one. Easter Bowl, three of the eight champions were actually Eastern Section players, right? So, what was it about Eastern Section players that they were able to win these tournaments, right? So, when you have three, three of eight players from the 2021 Easter Bowl and they are winning these matches, why, why, why wasn't it all the people that have all the hours from Florida? Why wasn't it all the you know these players capping it off from these, some of these other sections? And I think it's it comes down to that personalized training. I think it comes down to that specific work for players and you're given the opportunity to, to perform. So opportunity and funding is, is really everything, I think.
2: Yeah, I think that's pretty spot on. And I think uh, that is going to probably wrap up this episode. Um, So one thank you Dylan for joining us and two uh, we definitely want you guys to hit up Dylan in case that you are looking for some tennis instruction and sort of the personalization that we're talking about. Dylan is a fantastic resource. Um, You can hit him up on Instagram at Dylan47Roberts. That's Dylan D-Y-L-A-N the number 47 and then Roberts is R-O-B-E-R-T-S. Dylan is there any other place that people can hit you up um, to sort of find you? Uh, keep it simple for now. Let's keep it just, just for that current, um, you know,
1: at. And, um, you know, I got more stuff coming privately moving forward f- to for more private coaching and available opportunities for anybody that wants to discuss, reach out, or even just looking for some advice moving forward because I know it's a, a bit of a clown fiesta, for lack of a better term, when you're trying to understand development and, you know, what, what questions you should ask coaches to make sure that your kid has a good fit, you know? So, you know, if I'm going to, Push out opportunity and funding. I guess for for myself to give parents an opportunity to reach out and ask questions to how do I pick the right coach and stuff moving forward. Feel free to reach out and uh, I'll help you the best I can. Yeah, Dylan, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciate the perspective. It's very unique,
0: and uh, you know we look forward to having you on in the pod again. Um, guys, as always, follow us on Instagram Breakpoint Podcast Seven. Uh, you can also email us uh, also. Even though no one ever will, but you know, Breakpoint Podcast 7 at gmail.com. Um, Carrier Pigeon, also available as noted in the last episode. Drop it anywhere in Bayside. We'll find our way to it. And uh, thank you very much for joining. Uh, and we're going to release our next part in this mini series with a good friend of mine named Jan Leitner. We're going to discuss the European side of this discussion. So thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you next time.
2: Yeah, you can also hit us up on AIM at Breakpoint Podcast 7. <laughs> please um and our blackberry (laughs) pin also will be available in the description (laughs) thanks for listening everybody catch you next time ridiculous